In part 2 of discovering God's word, we learn some very important lessons on how to interpret scripture correctly. In Christendom today where there is so much misuse and abuse of scripture, every believer must know how to interpret scripture under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the author. Be blessed as you listen to and apply this important teaching. We started last Sunday in talking about uh discovering God's word. Uh we we did part 1 last Sunday, we're going to do part 2 today. Uh essentially we talked about how to study the words last Sunday. I hope you all haven't forgotten that. You know, like okay. Uh how do we study the word of God? And we talked about the inductive method, three steps in that method. Do you remember? <laughs> I was going to say it but what's the first part? observation interpretation and application right three simple things observation you read see what's happening who's talking to what what's being said what's the context uh when was it said why was it said observation then interpretation that means you'd try to get the meaning what was the original meaning intended in that passage that you're reading or the words that you're reading and then you talk about the application how do i apply it in my life uh we added two more steps if you will to that process we said journaling well wow, you remember journaling and reflection right so journaling so you write down what god is saying to you out of that passage it could be a simple thought it could be a word it could be a long message whatever god is telling you you write it down and then application so uh reflection that means now you go into the real world you're applying that word you're facing your situations you're thinking about the whole thing how you know am i doing this right what is what am i learning from real life as i apply this and you go back reflect and basically as you go through this process the objective is to assimilate the word into our hearts as uh, paul writes in colossians he says let the word of christ dwell in you richly it's going to dwell in us be a part of us so that living the word just becomes natural to all of us right let the word dwell in you richly and uh, we've talked about this last sunday this morning i want to talk about interpretation and some guidelines on how to interpret scripture correctly guidelines for interpretation now technically if you go to seminary or you go to bible college they use the word hermeneutics to talk about this right uh it's a very big word just 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 a piece of information there uh in our bible college we we do a course on hermeneutics uh it's maybe like 30 hours we spend on this it's an entire semester course we talk about it so what my attempt to do what i'm going to attempt to do this morning is condense 30 hours of teaching in 40 minutes right so i'm just trying to get the highlights of this on how to interpret scripture and uh, just give us some guidelines on how to interpret scripture correctly Um as we begin talking about this uh I want to just bring us to a particular passage or two passages in scripture where it kind of shocks us as we talk about hermeneutics. For example, if you look at Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, Joel is prophesying and he says in the last days God is saying I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and daughters will prophesy young men will see visions your old men will dream dreams 
Now you go across several centuries, you come to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You know, Pentecost happens. Peter stands up and he says, this is that. He quotes from Joel chapter 2 and he says, this is that. And when you and I look at those two passages very closely, we would not say, this is that. We would say, this is not that. Because in, in Acts 2, what do you find? There was a sound of a rushing mighty wind. There were tongues, flaming tongues of fire descending on the people. And they all spoke in other languages. But Joel said, there'll be visions, there'll be dreams, there'll be prophecy. None of those things happened here. Here we have the sound of a rushing mighty wind. We have tongues of fire. We have speaking other languages. And yet Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, stands up and says, this is that. So what I want us to understand as we begin this little discuss, uh, teaching here on hermeneutics is that the Holy Spirit is the best interpreter of Scripture. He is the best interpreter. He knows how to interpret it. So our dependence ultimately must be on the Spirit of God. Hermeneutics is good. It's developed by man. It teaches us some guidelines on how to interpret Scripture. But ultimately we must depend on the Holy Spirit. The author of Scripture to help us understand Scripture. I'm saying this not to give us license to just be arbitrary in our interpretation. Say, okay, this is that. So how do you know? The Holy Spirit told me. Yeah. We can't do that. Right? We can't be arbitrary. We can't just say this is that because Peter did this is that. I also do this is that. You know, we can't do that. There are guidelines that we must follow and stay within as we interpret scripture. Now there are several challenges as we try to interpret the Bible. There are many gaps. There is a spiritual gap. The Bible was written at a certain, many different portions of the Bible were written when God was doing different spiritual things on the earth in his, as part of what he was doing. We are living in a different time. So as we look back into scripture, we must keep in mind that God has since moved on. The Ten Commandments are very real, but God has moved on. Uh, things in the Old Testament are very real and things what God said are very legitimate there. But God has moved on in his spiritual program, what he's doing here on the earth. So we must keep that in mind. There's a spiritual gap. There is a time gap. Just uh, literally speaking, there's a time gap. There's a geographical gap. Things took place in a certain part of the world. We're living in a different part of the world as we read the scripture, the narratives that took place there. There's a cultural gap, a language gap, and a literary gap. So the language that was used originally and the style of writing that was used originally is very different from what you and I are used to today. So we keep these things in mind as we look at interpreting scripture. Now it's very important, you know, uh, why we must learn this. You know, some of us might say, okay, listen, the Holy Spirit is telling me everything. I don't, I don't need to learn all this hermeneutic stuff. Now the problem is, if you look back in church history, and I, love, I like to read church history and I like to see what's happening. And you'll find that sometimes there have been men who have been mightily used by God who also done the greatest damage to the body of Christ. 
They're greatly used by God in the gifts and in the anointing, but in their teaching, they have messed things up so bad that till today, the body of Christ is suffering because of it. Because of their wrong interpretation of scripture, they came out with erroneous doctrines that hurt the body of Christ, but in their anointing and gifting, they were very legitimate. They were very good. They, had, they were just totally used by God. In their anointing and their gifting, in, in the gift of the Spirit, very good, very legitimate. But in their teaching, they were erroneous. Because why? They did not interpret the scripture correctly. Until today, the body of Christ is suffering from that. Some of them, God had to deal with, God had to take them early off in life. They did not live out the full course of life. Why? Because they were doing more damage through their teaching than the blessing they were bringing through their anointing. It's serious. You look at church history, you'll see that. So, interpreting scripture is important for us, for us to know how to correctly understand what the word of God says. Two things that you and I will be familiar with, the inspiration and illumination. Inspiration of scripture was given only once. The Holy Spirit inspired the word of God once. It's inspired, it's written down. But illumination is what you and I experience each time we read the word. That means the Holy Spirit enlightens our understanding. The light bulb comes on. That's illumination. Oh, I see it. And it happens over and over and over again. We can experience it every day as we read the scriptures. We go through the word of God. We receive illumination, fresh insights. The Holy Spirit is making come alive today what he inspired many, many hundreds, thousands of years ago. Now, illumination, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, is so important because if I read the word without illumination, it'll be so difficult for me. I want to understand what's happening. So illumination of the Spirit, the enlightening of the Spirit is important for you and me as we read the Scriptures. We must, we must receive that work of the Spirit. Uh, uh, some things to keep in mind about illumination is this. Just because I receive illumination or revelation in one particular area of life does not mean I have illumination in all areas of life. I could be blinded in other areas. I need to receive illumination or revelation from the Spirit of God in all other areas of life as well from the Word of God. Illumination from the Holy Spirit also implies the following thing. It does not mean that my interpretations are infallible. I can't say, oh, the Holy Spirit showed me this, therefore I'm absolutely right. No, I have to validate it with the rest of Scripture and with what other people are also saying because they are also equally illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? If I'm afraid to validate what I feel is the illumination spirit with somebody else, there's a problem. Because the same Holy Spirit is in me is also working in them. So I've got to validate it. The, the work of the Spirit in interpretation does not mean that it gives me some hidden meaning in Scripture, which is not obviously there. It's not there, obviously. Right? So I can't read a Scripture and says, a scripture that says, love your enemies. And I say, you know, well, that's not what actually it means. It just means love those who are nice to you. So how do you know? The Holy Spirit told me. No, that's wrong. The obvious meaning is love your enemies. Now I can't superimpose something that I, I, I claim as a special revelation from that verse. I can't claim that. Three, the Holy Spirit in, in interpreting the Bible does not mean that I suddenly receive a flash of insight and then I don't do the necessary study of that. It is possible that illumination will happen in a moment, but you need to take it back and 
examine it with the word of God. Maybe walking down and suddenly a scripture comes up and fresh insight comes in. Wow, it's, it's rich. But you know what? Before you start telling anybody about it, you go back and check. Make sure it's right and then speak it. Validate what you're saying. Right? And lastly, all of us have access to the elimination of the spirit because the Holy Spirit is in all of us. And working in all of us. I want to talk about some rules that you and I must keep in mind as we interpret scripture. Are you all with me so far? Right? Don't fall asleep, please. It's like, what did you learn in church? <sighs> Hermeneutics. <you know? laughs> no. Stay awake. This is important because you and I are going to read the word. You're going to learn how to interpret scripture. First, we must interpret with the cultural context in mind. When you and I are interpreting scripture... Keep in mind the cultural context. Keep in mind that some things are addressing a cultural issue or are related to a particular point in time, therefore may not be transferable to us today. They are temporary in nature, not permanent in, in Scripture. And so as I, you and I read the Word of God, we must learn to demarcate or draw the distinction between the two. Some of it could be political. Understand what happened. You know, which empires, who was ruling, who was in power? There was the Egyptians. And the Israel, Israel became a nation. After that, the Babylonians came. Then the Medes and the Persians. And then the Greeks and then the Romans. The New Testament was written essentially at that time from the Greeks to the Romans. And therefore, many of the things that you find in the New Testament relate to Greek culture. Now, Paul says, I fight. Not as one, I run the race uh, to win. I, um, uh, he talks about putting on the full armor of God because... It was the Roman culture. They, they, they put on, the, uh, they wore the armor. The Roman soldiers operated under the armor. So a lot of it that we see in the New Testament come from the Greek and the Roman culture. So we understand based on that. A lot of the Old Testament would relate to the Babylonian, the Persian, the Medes. Uh, or if you go even earlier than that, it will relate to the Egyptian culture. We must understand scripture in the context, the time in which it was written. And as we read that, we must understand some things were for a certain people at a certain time. It's not transferable to us today. I can't, make, I can't uh, mandate it upon everyone. Now, let's look at some examples. You tell me whether this is permanent or whether this is temporary. Are you ready? Greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> if it's for your wife, it's permanent. <laughs> All right, that's Romans 16, 16. Now, Paul is addressing a certain people. They, it was part of their custom. We can't enforce it on the church today. That was temporary in nature. Be baptized, Acts 2.38. Permanent. Wash one another's feet, John 13, 34. Jesus said this, wash one another's. Is it? Permanent is it temporary? All right, it's temporary. We don't do it today. The principle is transferable. The principle is you love one another, and if I, being your leader, humble myself to wash each other's feet, you do likewise. We don't go around washing each other's feet, but we serve one another. That principle is transferable. That practice was there given at that moment to illustrate a principle. So we don't continue that practice, but we walk in that principle. Observe the Lord's Supper. That's firm enough, of course. 
Be circumcised. That's temporary. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. That's in Mark 6 and 9. Jesus said that. That's temporary, right? He was speaking to his disciples at that time. Do it. Cast lots for church officers. That was temporary. They did that in the book of Acts, but you don't find them continuing to do that every time. In fact, when all the other churches were established, they just appointed leaders. They didn't cast lots. So you'll find, you'll read many of these things in Scripture. And we need to see, is it permanent? Is it temporary? The problems, problems happen, churches divide, people fight with each other because they start taking something that was intended to be temporary and start enforcing it on everybody else. Then we have the feet washing service happening. You know. and all kinds of things happen. So understand the difference. There are some things uh, some things to keep in mind. You know, some situations are repeatable. They're continuous. They've not been revoked. So we continue with them. For example, capital punishment is mentioned once in, 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 in Genesis 9-6. But has never been revoked since then. And so we continue with that. Something was practiced at a certain point in time. Polygamy was practiced in the Old Testament. But when you come into the New Testament, it is explicitly revoked. Let every man be a husband of his own why? Explicit. Now, if you don't do that, you just pick up the Old Testament, then you'll end up like Joseph Smith. You create a new cult. In the Old Testament, you have a Nazarite who grew his hair as a sign of his dedication to the Lord. But you come into the New Testament, it says it's not nice for men to have long hair. If you want to, it's okay, but you know. So there are things that are explicitly changed. Some situations are given very specific to an individual. For example, Abraham. God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him up as a sacrifice. Then you come to the New Testament and says, God says, look at Abraham. He's a father of faith. He must walk in his steps. Does that mean that all of us offer our firstborn? We'll all be in jail, you know. Does it mean that? You follow the steps, but that word to sacrifice the son was a very specific word for Abraham. We don't practice that. Then there are certain uh, things in scripture which where only the principle is transferable. Like we saw some of them washing one another's feet and so on. The principle is transferable. The practice is not. And finally, there are some things very, very explicit that is, that is addressing a cultural situation in a particular church setting. For example, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, when Paul talks about the women covering their head, he addresses the Corinthian church and he tells them to cover their head. Women, you need to cover your head. But then he, he finishes that whole admonition at the end of that. He says, but we have no such custom in our churches. Meaning, this is very specifically for you Corinthians because he's addressing a situation in their culture. And he says, we don't practice the covering of the head in all other churches. So, we understand, therefore, the covering of the head is optional. You want to cover your head, that's up to you. But it's not mandated for everybody, every believer in every church to do it. It was written there specifically for the Corinthians. We know that. Or take for example, when Moses encountered the presence of God at the burning bush, what did God say? Take your... Now, if we establish that as a, as a 
church doctrine, all of us will have to leave our shoes outside and come into the presence of God. So we don't do that. It was given to a particular person at a particular situation. Now, sometimes God may pick something out of it and tell you to do it at a particular moment. Maybe you're in a particular time of worship and God tells you, kneel down, take your shoe off. Maybe to you. Maybe to one particular congregation at that particular moment of worship, he may do that. And that's only for that moment. But it's not something that we establish as doctrine for the body of Christ. Are you with me? You know, this church feet washing thing, it happened once. We were in Ecuador and we had this great time of meeting everything. And towards the last day, they took us to some person's house and they made us sit on a chair and they said, take off your shoes. You want to wash your feet. It's like, okay, you know, uh... I said, no, 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 you don't have to wash my feet. And I was so happy I had my bath and, you know, <laughs> wore clean socks that day. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, what if my socks are smelling bad? No, no. I said, no, take your shoes off. So they wouldn't let us go. We had to sit down. We had to let them. And they, they're like important people. They took a bowl. They made us take our shoes. And they washed off. It was the only time that they did it. And it was not a practice. It was not a doctrine in the church. But they just felt... As a way to honor us, they wanted to do it. We just let them do it. But that was something that God may have put in their heart at that moment. It's not, some, not a doctrine in, in, in the New Testament church. So keep this in mind. Number two, very simple. Keep in mind the normal rules for grammar and figures of speech. You know, for, for example, if you read in the Bible, uh, a tense in the Bible. Keep it in that tense. And the Bible says, by whose stripes you were healed. Read it in that tense. It has been done. It's past tense. Don't change the tense. You were healed. Right? Or if in the Old Testament it says, and the Amalekites were a pain in their sides. It means that those enemies were giving them a lot of trouble. It doesn't mean like, oh, they had all pain on their side. No. It's a figure of speech. Or they extended to me the right hand of fellowship. It's a figure of speech. It means they were very kind, cordial to me. Right? Like we have, it's raining cats and dogs. It doesn't mean like cats and dogs are dropping from the sky. You know? No, it's a figure of speech. You're just, you're just using it. So under you just apply normal in grammar rules for grammar and figures of speech. Here's one very important thing. Number three, recognize types, illustrations, and parables. The Bible is full of this. Types, illustrations, and parables. A type is a type, illustration, and parable. Uh, first of all, they are divinely indicated by God. I do not have the authority to make something a type or an illustration or a parable. They are already indicated in the word of God as such. For example, uh, first of all, what do we mean by type? A type or an illustration means something actually happened in the Bible. It's recorded for us. And... Uh, Somewhere else in scripture, it's looking back and saying, this is that. The type has an additional element of being predictive in nature. I mean, it's, it's a foreshadowing of something to come. For example, Christ, the Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, there, God told the people, you take the lamb. And this is in Exodus 12. You take the lamb, you kill the lamb, apply the blood, and so on. He tells them to do it. It's an actual incident. You come into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes and he says, Christ is our Passover. So now Paul, it's an explicit indicator in scripture. They're saying, look, that is a type 
This is the fulfillment. So now what we have the authority to do is go to the type, examine the type, and take some relevant characteristics out of the type and apply it to the fulfillment. For example, if you go to the type, what do they do? They took to the blood of the lamb, they applied it to the doorposts. So now you can say the blood, you can apply the blood of Jesus to our lives. Second, the blood of the lamb applied broad protection. So we can say, when you apply the blood of the lamb, it brings you protection. So you can go back to the type and elicit information about the fulfillment and learn some things. That's a valid thing to do. Similarly, there are illustrations. Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, even so the son of man will be uh, in the lower parts of the earth for three days, three nights. So what's he doing? He's using that as an illustration. Just as that, so also is this. Right? So now we can, he's, he's giving that as an illustration for people to understand. Parables are simply stories from our world that contain spiritual truth. Spiritual truth is hidden in the parable. So if you understand the story, uh, you, can, you, can under, you can get to understand spiritual truth. So there are types, there are illustrations, there are parables. Are you with me so far? But here is what we should not do. When you and I are working with types, illustrations and parables in the Bible, two things. One, only elicit the intended meaning from the type, illustration or parable. Only get the meaning that God intended for us to get. Secondly, don't stretch it. Don't stretch the type or the illustration or the parable to bring out meaning that was not originally intended. For example, Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, even to the son of man. So then you hear the preacher say, in the belly, it was really dark. And that represents the darkness that Jesus went into. And in the belly, there were seaweeds that, in, and that just this bound Jonah, he couldn't move. The seaweeds represent the cords of our sin. <laughs> and then there were gastric juices flowing there. That represents the effects of our sin. And then of course the fish vomited him up on the seashore. That represents the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you hear this preaching, you may have had it, heard some of this kind of preaching. That is pushing it a little too far. That is not the intended meaning of that illustration. But how many sermons we hear preach from our pulpits that, that take a type or an illustration or a parable and they just stretch it, they flex it, they mangle it, they come up with all kinds of meanings and preach. And everybody's like, good sermon, pastor. You, know. you, should not, you cannot do this with scripture. Always go with the intended meaning and stick to it. The fourth important thing about interpreting scripture is use allegorizing with caution. Now, again, I'm just using this for fun. Okay, don't, don't get angry with me. But many Pentecostal preachers are very experts at allegorizing. I mean, they can take any scripture anywhere and come up with some deep theology out of it. Allegorizing, meaning... You give to the scripture a meaning that was not in it, that's not contained in it, and that was not intended by the Holy Spirit. You 
create out of your imagination something, some meaning out of the scripture. For example, you know, somebody could take up the story of the good Samaritan, the man going from um, Jerusalem on his way to Jericho, he's beaten up and, and all of that. And they just say, you know, okay, so what, what is the meaning of it? The inn represents the church and uh, we should go and pick up all the hurting people, bring them into the church. So, so wait a minute, preacher. Is that what Jesus meant? Sounds good as a preaching message. But is that what Jesus really meant when he gave that story of the Good Samaritan? No. That's not what he meant. Or you could hear somebody talking about, you know, they go to the Old Testament. They look at the wicks of the tabernacle and they say, you know, just as the wicks in the tabernacle had to be trimmed so the fire could be burning, we have to keep trimming our sinful nature so the fire of the Spirit can be burning. Now, if you got your theology right, you will know your sinful nature was crucified on the, ca- on, on the cross. So you got no sinful nature to keep trimming. But if you don't know that, then that's a great message to preach. And you'll hear such messages. Allegorizing, giving to scripture a meaning that was never intended by the Holy Spirit. Or Abraham, he sent his servant Eliezer to look for a bride for his son Isaac. So God has sent the Holy Spirit to look for a bride for his son Jesus. Isaac is Jesus. Eliezer is the Holy Spirit. Sounds nice as a message. But was that what God intended? No. So what are we doing? We are allegorizing. We are giving to scripture meaning that the Holy Spirit never intended to that. So what's the right and the wrong use of allegorizing? The right way, when you're studying Old Testament scripture, any narrative in scripture, the right thing to do is to look at it very objectively and say, what lessons can I learn? For example, David going to fight Goliath. The right thing you can do is, from this lesson, from this narrative, I can see courage. I can see faith. David had faith in God. David had courage to go fight an enemy that was much bigger than him. Uh, David had confidence in his covenant with God. That's why he challenged an uncircumcised Philistine. So these are valid scriptural lessons we can get out of that narrative. But the moment I say, David represents Jesus. Goliath represents Satan. The five stones represent the nail that went through his feet. One nail through his right hand, one nail through his left, the crown of thorns on his head, and the fifth one was the spear that was on his side. Five stones. I am now allegorizing. I'm now bringing out a meaning that was not, not, I'm giving it a meaning that was not intended in scripture. So you got to be careful how you interpret it, right? Get the lessons that you can learn. How David went and fought Goliath. What did he do? How did he walk with God? But don't assign meaning into that scripture that was never intended in the first place. So be careful of allegorizing and introducing meaning. Now, you know, um, just this is just an aside. It's not necessarily direct, uh, related to interpreting scripture. But when you're ministering in personal prophecy to somebody, and I've done it many times, and you might have done it as well. When you're ministering in prophecy to somebody, you might say things like this. You know, I just say the Lord is telling you that just as he raised up Joseph in the Old Testament and uh, he empowered Joseph to bring solutions that impacted a nation. In the same way, God will raise you up and uh, give you wisdom that, uh, so that you can bring out solutions that will affect a nation. 
So that's very valid because I am prophesying. I'm not teaching or interpreting scripture. I'm using an illustration from the Bible to convey to him a message that God wants that person to hear. Right? So that's perfectly fine. It's prophesying. I'm not interpreting scripture here. I am using an illustration of the Bible to communicate a message that God has for a particular person. And so that's, that's fine. Number five, fifth important key to keep in mind when you're interpreting scripture is this. God's revelation of himself, his plans and purposes are progressive. So if you want to interpret something in time, you must look at it from the end, not just from that particular isolated moment in time. Example, God said the soul that sins, it will die. If I just pick out that scripture, I can go to everybody and say, you're a sinner, you're going to die. But God has moved on from that. He's provided the cross. And now he says, whoever believes will receive eternal life. So I can't take a verse of scripture from the Bible, isolated in time, and just use it. I must interpret it in the light of God's progressive revelation. What else has he revealed since then? He's gone on from there and he's showed us that there is salvation through Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind. Number six, interpret scripture based on divine nature. Now this is not part of hermeneutics. This is now coming into some personal thoughts here. Number six, interpret based on divine nature, which means when I interpret scripture, the right thing for me to do is to base it on who God is and not base it on somebody's experience. God reveals his nature through his covenant names. He said, I am Jehovah Rapha. I am Jehovah Jireh. I am so and so. That's his nature. He reveals his nature in that name. God also has revealed his nature to us in the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the word who became flesh. Now, listen to this. I cannot base any theology on the life of any other human being in scripture or outside scripture. If it does not align itself to what I see revealed in the name, in the covenant names of God and in the person of Jesus Christ. While we respect Abraham and Joseph and Daniel and Job and Paul and Peter and Mark and John and all these wonderful men in, the, in scripture... They were all fallen men. Which means they are not the perfect revelation of God. Are you with me? So I cannot take some incident from their life and then build a theology on that. If it contradicts God's names or what I see in the person of Christ. I can learn lessons from each of these men's lives because they are men. I can learn lessons. But my theology must be in alignment with the nature of God as revealed to the names of God and to the person of Jesus Christ. For example, if I look at Job, I may develop a theology that sickness is good sickness. It's good for you to have sickness. Get some more of it. Because as soon as you come out of it, you might get two, twice as much as what you had before you started. So if you want to double what you have, Keep falling sick. I could come up with some strange things like that. But when I look at the covenant name of God, he says, I am Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord your healer. When I look at Jesus Christ, I don't see him making any person sick. I see him healing the sick. So my theology must be based on the names of God and the person of Christ.
I can learn from Job. I can learn how he endured through all the hardships because we were all live, we are all living in a fallen world as fallen men. I can learn from his life, but my theology must be based on who God said he is, his nature, as revealed in his names and in the person of Christ. Are you with me so far? Two more points and I'll close. Number seven, scripture interprets scripture. Wherever you find scripture interpreting scripture, you go with that. You elicit the patterns of interpreting scripture. For example, you will see Isaiah 53, 4. Isaiah is prophesying about the cross of Jesus. You jump in the New Testament, Matthew 8, 17. The Holy Spirit interprets Isaiah 53, 4. Therefore, we can interpret Isaiah 53 based on what the Holy Spirit says in Matthew 8, 17. In Isaiah 53, 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So I wonder what that means. Go to Matthew 8, 17. In Matthew 8, 17, it says, He himself took our sicknesses and our diseases. So I can go back to Isaiah 53, 4 and say, That means he took my sicknesses and my diseases on the cross. Scripture interprets Scripture. We already saw Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And Acts 2 verse 17, how Peter quotes from Joel, interpreting scripture, saying this is that. Meaning here is the beginning of the fulfillment of God pouring out his spirit in the last days. In Amos 9.11, Amos prophesies, in the last days, God says, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. Acts 15.14, James stands up and says, God is doing it right now. So that's the fulfillment of Amos prophecy. But you see a pattern. You see that Old Testament prophecy concerning Israel is spiritually fulfilled in the body of Christ before it is literally fulfilled in Israel. So you see a pattern of interpreting scripture. That prophecies concerning Israel and the old are spiritually fulfilled in the body of Christ before they are literally fulfilled by Israel. Are you with me? Because that's scripture interpreting scripture. One last point before I close. Number eight is be careful of personal and subjective revelation. You know, the positive is that the Holy Spirit may quicken a verse of scripture to you personally and say, this is for you. This is your life assignment or this is what I want you to do. That's very valid. Uh, example is that of John the Baptist. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah the 40th chapter, prepare the way of the Lord, a voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Hundreds of years later, somebody comes and asks John, John, what's your ministry? He says, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Hey, John, as I didn't mention your name there. How can you say that scripture applies to you? Well, because it was given to him by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit took a verse from Isaiah's prophecy, quickened it to John. John now identifies with it and says, that's my life assignment. I am a voice crying in the and that can happen to you and me. The Holy Spirit may take a particular verse of scripture and say, that's your assignment. You, you find yourself in scripture. That's you. Very valid. But what we must be careful of in subjective revelations is things like this. Let us say you are praying about the young man that you saw in church on August 15th at the youth service. And you're praying to God, is that the young man I must marry? So you open your Bible, and the Bible falls open to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. 
My beloved spoke and said to me, rise up my love, my fair one, and come away. So there's only those words, come away, stand up to you. You underline it, you circle it, you color it in red, you write the date. God is speaking to me, come away. I must go away with this guy. Next day you're still praying about it and you're saying, oh God, is that the guy for me, Lord? What to do? And you flip open the page, pages of the Bible, opens up to 1 Samuel 10, 24. It says, and Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And of the whole that verse, the verse, do you see him, stands out for you. And you underline it, you circle it, you color it in red, you write the date. God is speaking to me. Next day, early morning, you get up. Devotion time, you're only thinking about that guy. She's saying, God, are you speaking to me? Please tell me. Is he the guy for me? And your Bible opens up to Acts 10, 20. It says, arise, therefore go down and go with them. Don't doubt anything. <laughs> and, and it's like, man, only those words, go. Don't doubt anything. The word them and all this. The whole context doesn't mean anything. Only those words, go. Don't doubt anything. That's a dangerous thing to do because you're taking verses out of context totally uh, not in, uh, you know, not even looking at what it means who is saying to what nothing and it can get you in a lot of trouble you can say I have three verses for this you can still mess up big time so you got to be careful these are things you do not do with scripture the best the right thing to do of course is, is to listen to the Holy Spirit speaking into your heart about him or her, that you pers- the person, and uh, you use your, um, you get counsel if you need, you use, um, uh, you look into other aspects of making a very practical and godly decision. So, this morning we just learned some basic things on how to interpret scripture. I want to encourage you to use these things as you read your Bible, as you try to get the application of scripture uh, for yourself I, I just want to make a small comment here and, uh, and, and then I'll close. You know, uh, uh, looking at church history and looking at how the church has evolved or, or, and grown over the years, what you find is that at every period of time, there has been a certain language used to communicate what God is doing. If you look at the church world today, you don't find many denominations as such. But what you do find is a lot of camps, if you will, or streams, or or different kinds of ministries all around the world. And each kind of ministry develops its own lingo. They have their own cliches, their own phrases, to talk about a very legitimate work of God. So God is genuinely moving in all of these camps, and all of these streams in Christendom. He's at work, he's doing something very legitimate. But they develop their own language to talk about what is going on. So if you're listening to somebody, you know, uh, you talk about, you know, coming undone and being a laid down lover of Jesus. And I'm like, okay. So immediately you can tell, okay, they're from that camp. Nothing wrong with the language. Just that that's their language. They're using that. You listen to somebody else and they talk about activation and, and uh, reformation. And uh, uh, you understand, okay, they're coming from that camp. And, and, and as, you, as you look at all these camps, the problem is that each one of them have their own set of cliches, their own way of describing a very genuine work of God. And people tend to take pride in the packaging of the truth rather than in the truth itself. So I want to encourage you and me, 
stick with the truth, drop the package. The power is not in the package. It's not in all those cliches that people use. And you can look at each of these camps. And, you know, if you're listening to Bill Johnson, Jesus Culture, if you're listening to, you know, uh, Bishop Bill Hammond, and you're listening to Heidi Baker, you're listening to John Paul Jackson, and you're listening to uh, the IHOP, the Tabernacle Prayer. All of these are very legitimate moves of God. I learned from all of them. I received truth from all of them. But the problem is each one has their own lingo, their own language to talk about what God is doing. And you can immediately tell the moment you hear somebody using a certain type of language, you know what they've been listening to. You know which stream or which camp they are coming from. And the problem is people tend to take more pride in that particular lingo or that particular cliche, all the cliches and the catchy phrases they use, thinking the power is in that. The power is not in that. The power is in the truth of the word. So just stay with the truth. Drop the package. Amen? Same thing with all of us here. God is doing something through us. Uh, and, and as this begins to grow and we see more of God's presence and God's anointing and, and I begin to you know, we will definitely have a certain language to communicate with one another, certain things and all that. But remember, it's not in the language, it's in the truth. So don't take pride in the package. Stay with the basics, the truth. Because many of us, you know, we get so proud of the kind of packaging we carry. Oh, I come from this camp. I, I, I speak like this. I worship like this. I do like this. I mean, listen. At the end of the day, it's your heart. It's not about the style. It's not about the outward things we do. It's your heart. Is your heart right? Are you really worshiping God? Are you just using some catchy phrases that talk about worshiping God? It's a big difference. So, as we, so for my, my, my goal is, hey, just stay with the basics. Stay with the truth of the word. Don't worry about the lingo. Don't worry about all this uh, super spiritual jargon that we have coming across through Christendom from different camps and, you know, uh, different preachers and men of God, all of them are wonderful people. I learn from them. I listen to them. But one thing I try to avoid doing is taking on their cliches. No, let me stay with the truth. The truth is what brings power. The truth is what brings freedom. I will pursue that, grow in that, but leave aside the packaging. Leave it aside. The power is not in the package. Amen? Let's stand to our feet, please. And if there's anyone here this morning and Maybe you're visiting, maybe you've come here a few times, but you've never opened your heart to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're searching, you're seeking, you're saying, I want to know the truth. And Jesus said, I am the truth. Truth is not a thought, it's not a philosophy, it's not a religion. Truth is a person, his name is Jesus. And if you will open your life to him, you will discover truth. You will know what it is to walk in the truth. You will know what it is to be totally free. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus. Does anyone here this morning, you've never opened your heart to Jesus. If you never said, Jesus, come into my life and show me the truth. Teach me the truth. And lead me in the truth. Then this morning, I want to encourage you just to pray a small prayer in your own heart saying, Jesus, I come to you. I'm looking, I'm seeking, I'm searching for the truth. Help me to find you. Help me to know you. Work in my life, Lord Jesus. Work in my life, Lord Jesus. Father, we just pray your blessing on each one of us, O oh God, as we continue our journey in the study of your word.
Holy Spirit, empower us. Illuminate our hearts, our minds. That we may be able to see the truth. Apply the truth correctly in our lives. And walk in it, O oh God. Come Holy Spirit over each one of us. Illuminate our hearts and our minds. Give us revelation. Even as we read the Bible, as we study the Bible. Illuminate our hearts and minds, we pray. Help us to see things we're yet to see. Help us to know God even so much more clearly, Lord. We thank you, O oh God. Thank you. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.